This is Pharma Talk Radio. I'm Valerie Bowling. I'm so pleased to welcome my guest, Ken Tolke, to discuss lessons learned so far from setting up both therapeutic and vaccine-focused programs for COVID-19. Kent is the Executive Vice President and Chief Scientific Officer at PRA Health Sciences. I have worked with Kent over many years on researching a number of topics and developing those topics into conference presentations that overall really challenge the way we do clinical trials and to execute these ideas to safely expedite research, engage patients, and generally make it much easier for patients to participate in clinical research. So it is no surprise to me that Kent has been at the forefront involved in leading some of the trials for COVID-19. So Kent, welcome to PharmaTalk Radio. Thank you, Valerie. It's uh, great to be here. I think that um, we are in unprecedented times, so this should be a very interesting conversation. And I think we are calling from opposite ends of the country. I'm calling from New York City. Are you in Seattle? I am normally in Seattle, but for the quarantine, I'm actually in California. So uh, I've been here about six weeks now, and it's quite interesting to see kind of how the different states are dealing with the quarantine practices and isolation and and the impact on kind of COVID-19 spread. So I'm, you know, closely monitoring uh, both uh, areas of the West Coast, but I'm keeping a track of kind of the entire country. Mm. Yeah, I mean, we're still fully under um, quarantine. Um, you know, people are getting out and um, going for walks and walking the dog and riding the bikes, but um, the only uh, shops open are the grocery stores, and, and even those you have to get online and space out and wear the masks and gloves, and um, they want you in and out quickly. Um, and, uh, and you can go into pharmacies and I think banks for... for, for uh, certain hours. Um, you know, are you seeing a similar scene in California? Yeah, California clearly has been one of the leaders. Uh, I think that the governor and, and his team here, and, and, and as well as Washington State, uh, have really focused quite closely on isolation and shelter-in-place rules, um, and clearly have focused on kind of the ability to uh, contain the ability for the virus to spread. And, and so far, everything we have seen is that those practices are working quite well. And so the flattening of the curve of new infections, the lowering of overall patient deaths we're seeing in these regions are continuing to look like they're getting better. Um, it's still early days. Uh, I expect that we will continue to see uh, shelter-in-place rules in some manner, at least through the end of May, if not into June. Um, in more conservative states. And then I think we'll watch closely those mm-hmm. states that are um, being a little more aggressive to see, you know, how the virus behaves uh, as those restrictions are lifted. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, Ken, let's start with a little um, overview about your background and how you got into uh, clinical research. Oh, my gosh. It was a really long time ago. <laughs> so I've been doing this almost okay. 30 years now. <laughs> Uh, I am wow. a scientist by training, so uh, I'm a bench scientist who, who came out of school and started doing basic research uh, and quickly determined that that was not a life that uh, kind of fit how I wanted to move forward. Um, there's phenomenal bench scientists out there, but uh, it just wasn't for me. And so um, just serendipitously throughout my career, I suddenly ended up being uh, in support of some clinical trials uh, and then moved uh, into clinical research and really have been there ever since. Um, I've been phenomenally lucky to have incredible mentors uh, over the years. 
Um, very early on, I managed to work with some amazing biotechnology companies and had the opportunity to kind of mix bench and clinical science and, and had a number of opportunities to uh, get some patents in novel radionuclide therapy for patients and cancer. I focused on cancer for the majority of my career. I did take some breaks in between to focus on HIV uh, infection kind of in the mid to late 90s. Um, but really, uh, I have found this opportunity in this career um, to be phenomenally rewarding. So um, I think there's very few people that get to go to work every day knowing that um, the decisions that we make and the work that we do uh, has a direct impact not on single patients and their um, ability to treat their disease or to, to save their lives, but really at grand scales globally. And so um, I cannot think of anything I would have ever liked to do better. Uh, and I am, I am acutely aware of the privilege that I have to be in an industry that uh, is focused on saving patient lives. And I am equally um, aware of the significant responsibility that comes with that uh, magnitude of opportunity. So um, again, I've been doing clinical research for about 30 years, and I have seen it evolve from the very early days where we barely had frameworks on how to test patients to today where um, science, medicine, technology have all kind of come to this phenomenal uh, apex to really um, make patient lives better at a rapid pace. Mm. So I'm going to fast forward um, and, and, and ask you flat out, I mean, how did you get involved with rapidly setting up both therapeutic and vaccine-focused programs for COVID-19? So, you know, PRA is a global contract research organization. We're one of the top three or four in the world. And so, as you can imagine, uh, we have uh, significant long-standing relationships with many of the major pharmaceutical and biotechnology companies, uh, many of whom we have worked with uh, in earnest for well over a decade. And so, uh, many of those partners already had some sort of uh, drug or mechanism or technology in place that they thought could have an impact on the disease process uh, that was COVID-19. And so, um, you know, as, as the disease started to take hold around the world, um, you know, there were brilliant scientific teams within these companies that um, quickly got together, mobilized, and were looking at opportunities um, where their drugs might help the, uh, the quelling of the disease. And so um, one of those partners uh, very early on in the pandemic uh, reached out to us and said, look, you know, we don't have the time to do things the way we have always done them. We cannot take a clinical trial uh, process and have it last five, six, seven months just to get started and get our drug out there because every day patients are dying. And so how can we work with the regulators and with our internal processes and your processes to really let's do the best we can to minimize that time to get these essential, potentially um, uh, strong treated drugs to these patients. And so uh, our first call came on a Friday night. Uh, we worked with that company and met with regulators over the weekend. The FDA has been phenomenally responsive. Uh, within you know, five or 10 minutes, we were getting emails back. We had meetings within 12 hours. Uh, we had responses 12 or 24 hours later. By Monday or Tuesday of that following week, so three or four days later, we had already assembled uh, internally a global operations team. Uh, and by that following Friday, we were already treating patients. So within the span of one week with a, a very strong partner of ours, we were able to do things and get drugs to patients at a speed that in literally in my 30 years, I have never seen. 
And so um, it was a phenomenal opportunity. Now for us, uh, we had a number of benefits, which were we had worked with this partner for many, many years. We already had processes in place. We knew all of the players. And so um, it was very quick. And, and what is uh, very interesting to me is the collaboration that we have seen between uh, multiple divisions within our own company, with the regulatory groups, with the sponsor companies, and all of the groups within those sponsor companies uh, has resulted in our ability to do things with unprecedented speed. And I think at the end of the day, it is because every single person on these teams knows that patient lives depend on it in a way like we've never seen. And so um, the commitment at the individual level uh, is just awe-inspiring to me. And so um, the potential that this could be any one of us or it could be our parents or our children and that, you know, if the disease is severe enough and you get into an ICU or on a ventilator, your chance of survival is only 20%. I mean, that drives that need for speed and that incredible commitment by everybody involved to compress these clinical trial timelines. So you mentioned that the FDA was very responsive, and you know, everybody's like all hands on deck, it sounds like. Um, but what was that process like? Would you be able to bring us through the experience or, and, you know, to share, like, the lessons learned? Like, what made this different than a regular clinical trial? Um, I mean, obviously, the urgency, but, but, you know, knowing that that is the key um, in this particular case and what got you the um, support, you know, you know, we'd love to learn how we can do this for other clinical trials, um, and I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Well, I think, you know, as an industry, we have spent, uh, if you think about modern clinical trials, you know, we've probably spent 25 or 30 years now creating uh, standard operating procedures, SOPs, and processes uh, that have, have quite honestly eclipsed what the original intent uh, of GCP and ICH was. I mean, the goal here is really to keep patients safe and to create and conduct research within that environment where patient safety is really paramount and that we're doing good, solid science. Many of the processes, the timeframes, the, the kind of procedures and bureaucratic pieces that we have put in place around clinical trials have been the cause of significant delays, including kind of things like contracting with sites and contracting with institutions and and as you layer on that, things like uh, ethics committees, institutional review boards, and regulatory review, um, there are just so many pieces and processes that to get a trial started today, I mean, generally, even with central IRBs, can take anywhere from three months to, depending on geography, 12-plus months. And so um, this opportunity afforded us a chance to kind of peel back everything and say, okay, at the bare minimum, to ensure we are meeting all of, of uh, good clinical practice and all of the tenets of ICH, as well as ensuring that patient safety was still paramount and that we had kind of legal obligations captured, that what is that minimal practice we can do to get a trial up and running? And so that opportunity uh, to kind of change the entire paradigm uh, and then to work with open-minded people. So. The, the folks at the regulatory agencies, both EMA as well as FDA and certainly uh, regulatory agencies in, in Asia, um, have all kind of said, okay, we know what our standard process is, but if we take that aside and we keep these basic tenets in mind, what is it that we can do to ensure that we fast track 
good quality science and drugs into these patient populations to impact this global pandemic. And so that framework has really allowed us to work at speeds we have never seen before. Um, and, and really the kind of the open-mindedness of the regulators has been a key part of that, but also institutionally within pharma clients, within uh, our own companies, uh, to be able to peel back a lot of this infrastructure we have created over the years to really get back to the basics. What is core and essential to do our jobs and what is just kind of procedures and processes we have added over time that aren't adding to the true value of our core mission. Mm. And so um, in your experience, on average, how long does the clinical trial process take, you know, from, um, you know, when, you, you know, you, you first patient in the trial? Well, again, you know, of course, everything is different, and it depends on the drug and the mechanism and the country and, and, and where you're going. But generally speaking, you know, a clinical trial takes anywhere from a very quick trial, three or four months to get up and running, uh, to 12 or 18 months, depending on the geography and the regula regulatory bodies you're working with. And again, much of that is process. So uh, without a significant amount of urgency, and, and remember, much of the process that we have built globally is not technology enabled. So we are still relying upon wet ink signatures, paper documents, uh, the back and forthing mm -hmm. of email documents. Um, when, if you think of uh, industries outside of healthcare and outside of drug development, uh, like the financial industry that has gone almost entirely paperless, um, if we had the opportunity to use those technology solutions, which we have today, they're just not widely adopted by pharma sponsors or, or um, uh, generally sites, um, but if we leverage those, which we are having to do because of COVID, so uh, if you do that, you can see that we have the ability to shave three, four, five, even six months off of many of these startup timelines to get clinical trials going. And so what COVID did for us was when we sent everybody home to work from home, all of a sudden nobody was in an office to have all of the paper required to run these trials in the traditional model. And so very quickly we had to start deploying some of these technologies that we have created to be able just to keep uh, business continuity going, to keep trials going, to ensure that patients who are on trials continue to have access to their medications and their visits. We're also deploying telehealth and, and virtual visits for physicians within institutions and processes that we never imagined that they would be part of. So very quickly, uh, we are working with companies and, and investigators and regulators to modify clinical protocols to allow for telehealth virtual visits, uh, connected devices to collect data from patients remotely within their home. So all of these technologies are being deployed in ways that we had never thought of before, which are rapidly compressing these timelines. And, and we are hopeful that the experiences people have with technology during COVID uh, will become the new normal and kind of our new paradigm for how mm. we conduct business mm -hmm. in clinical research. Mm. So you got rid of the paper and incomes enabling technologies for remote access. So that's, that's really wonderful. Um, so, so you were talking about like what it takes to get started, but the whole process, you know, uh, you know, we desperately want to try to get a vaccine as quickly as possible, for example. And, you know, in the media we're saying potentially 18 months, but then I heard Dr. Gottlieb say two years. Um, but in general, you know, how long does it take the process, not just the startup, but the whole process, you know, by the time a therapeutic can get into the hands of a patient? 
on average, would you say? So I think I think it's important uh, that we separate out therapeutics and vaccines. So uh, therapeutics, small molecules, even large molecules, uh, that time frame uh, tends to be quicker than vaccines just because of the science behind how we create vaccines. So um, okay. in the case of COVID, uh, so small molecules that were already developed. So have drugs are already developed and being used either for an approved indication or are through clinical trials and just about to get approved where we already have well-established safety profiles, which is what you're seeing a lot of what's happening right now. We are taking drugs that are already in existence and we are trying to use them in COVID patients to see if they're effective. That is a relatively quick process. And so those are where you're seeing us see those compressed timelines and getting studies up and running within weeks or a, a couple of months. When you're talking about kind of the general drug development process and, and small molecules or, or large molecules, generally that time frame from start to finish, if you think about the life cycle of inventing a drug and then getting it through trials and mm -hmm. regulators and approved, takes 10 plus years, costs a couple of billion right. dollars. Um, what we're right. talking about doing now in this new paradigm is, you know, in theory, we can compress that significantly through technology. The other thing to think about, and this is where vaccines will benefit, is that our ability to engage and interact with potential patients in a virtual model, so using mobile health, mobile technology, telehealth, gives us uh, a capacity of scale that we really haven't had access to before. So on average, uh, one of the things that really takes the greatest amount of time in clinical trials is the recruitment of patients. Um, and I know, Valerie, you and I have talked a lot this about this in kind of the context of clinical research as a care option. But today, only about 3 to 5% of the population participates in trials. And so when you think about how many patients we need to test a drug to see if it works, much of that time is just because we, it takes so long to get patients into trials. If we can utilize technology and mobile health and telehealth at scale, so if you think about kind of consumer health, so patients that are being seen in minute clinics like the CVS or through the Walmart health clinics or in places where you're seeing hundreds of thousands to millions of patients within an ecosystem, if we can deploy mobile technology to engage with those patients and then roll out access to clinical trials through that technology, all of a sudden, instead of 3 to 5% of the population participating in research, it is 60 or 70 or 80%. And so you can imagine that volume of patients then compresses those timelines even more. So instead of 10 or 12 years to get a drug to market, we may be able to get a drug to market in four or five years. And so technology helps enable that, but so does access to large volumes of patients. And when you think about vaccines, especially in a COVID space, where we're going to need access to very large numbers of COVID-negative patients, we will need the ability at scale to engage with patients in environments where they are not uh, at risk of con uh, contracting COVID, but also then to engage with patients to collect long-term data from them from the privacy of their own home. So that mobile technology, telehealth, bring-your-own-device model will become even more imperative to get those vaccine trials done more quickly. And so while vaccine trials may take 18 months to get started or get done, um, we can compress that too if we do this right. So this pandemic in a way is a, like a case study for CRACO or clinical research as a care option. Absolutely. I mean, you and I have talked about this at length and I know I talk about it quite often out in the industry. I mean, I firmly believe 
that clinical research should be a care option for all patients. Mm -hmm. And the reason we say a care option is that we're not saying that every patient should be on a clinical trial. What we're saying is that physicians should have the opportunity to evaluate each patient to see if a novel therapeutic Mm -hmm. or vaccine uh, is a reasonable treatment option to add to their standard of care. Um, And so we believe, I believe, that um, in many cases, clinical trials or participation in clinical research as a care option is the best possible care for that patient. And and what we see today is that many patients don't get access to clinical trials, one, because of geography. So they may not live live near a site or have a site Mm -hmm. accessible that has a trial open. Mm -hmm. Or two, I mean, socioeconomic status creates challenges. Also, the barriers to participate in research are very, very high. So in the traditional model, to participate in a clinical trial, you're asking people to take time off of work, get daycare for their kids, go to a clinic visit, you know, four or five times as often as they would for their standard of care. And so how do we take those models and lower the barrier to entry for patients, which is, is through mobile technology, make geography not a barrier, again, through technology, and if we can do those things, then all of a sudden we take away the barriers that limit clinical research as a care option for the majority of people. And that's how we'll combine clinical research as a care option for the physician and a care option for the patient. Yeah, I was going to say, Kent, um, quite often physicians have no easy access to find the right clinical trial for a patient. Um, and, of course, you know we're seeing all over the news you know, families desperate to get access to um, clinical research um, where they have patients that um, they're really terrified for their lives. And, um, and too often, or, you know, the vast majority of patients will not have the option uh, to be in a clinical trial, um, especially with, you know, COVID-19. Um, I wanted to ask you, you know, given our ability, you know, to move considerably faster during um, this pandemic, you know, what are your thoughts on how um, pharma will ever go back to doing clinical trials have, as they have been traditionally doing them? I mean, I think if anything, uh, what COVID-19 and our response to it has done has shown us as an industry that we can do better. So, you know, for 20 or 30 years, we created a model and platform that we all have gotten quite honestly complacent with. And, and I would argue, and, and I know it can be controversial, but you know, while our model's focus is to bring new medicines to patients to help their diseases and save lives, much of the process that we have created uh, and the length it takes to get these drugs to people is actually costing patient lives. And so what this uh, response has done, and again, this is not gonna be true for every single trial or every single disease. But in many cases, what this has done is shown us that we can do better and that we can do it in an environment where patient safety remains paramount and that good science is the basis for what we're doing. But what we're doing is stripping away um, many of the barriers that have resulted in extensive timeline delays to get patients access to clinical trials. And so if we don't take these lessons learned and apply them as a new normal, Uh, shame on us as an industry, right? That is, you know, for the most part, Mm -hmm. everybody I know that got into this business got into it to make patient lives better. And what this has taught us is that we can do that. And even more so, 
you know, for many companies, and, and I talk to folks all the time about the impl- implementation of technology, many sponsor companies have been very uh, careful about their strategy. So they're running lots of pilots and they're dipping their toes in the water around technology. And all of a sudden, the entire planet shut down. So patients didn't have access. The only way to keep business continuity and trial access open has been through technology. So our hope is that suddenly things that concern people, and and this is the great unknown, right? So people didn't want to deploy technology in clinical trials because it hadn't really been done before. And now all of a sudden we will have had four or five months where it is all we have done. And so we're hoping that the ability to socialize people's experience with technology and how we integrate it into our clinical trials and care option and research um, will help us create kind of that enthusiasm for using technology as part of this new normal and how we conduct research. And really, I just don't see how we can go back. And so um, while this is a horrendous tragedy for the world, um, I think that we have to take the good out of it where we can. And for drug development, um, you know, things will never be the same. Our paradigm has got to shift. It is shifting. Um, and, and this is not a Band-Aid for right now. So while we're talking with lots of sponsor companies and we're talking with folks like yourselves around what are we doing right now to fix COVID, the reality is this experience for COVID will last several more months while states and countries open up. And there is a great potential that in the fall and winter season, we will see a resurgence of COVID in some manner and it will overlap with the flu season. So this is not a solution just for the next couple of months. What we're really talking about is creating a baseline platform so that we can continue to conduct research and make sure patients have access to medications, all medications, not just COVID medications, regardless of if COVID comes back in the fall. So this is a a, a 9, 12, 18-month plan. This is not a plan just to have a Band-Aid on the solution until everything opens back up in the summer, right? You know, which leads me to my next question, which is, you know, I was going to say that, you know, COVID-19 has no doubt interrupted clinical trials in general. So I can imagine, you know, maybe we can expect, you know, missing data or drug shortages. I mean, what are you seeing, um, you know, with the interruptions for the other trials that are going on? And, you know, and do you have any thoughts on how we can start to repair that disruption? I mean, it's such a great question. So, the, you know, as we think about this, everything you see on the news 24-7 is about COVID-19. But that didn't mm-hmm. mean people stopped having cancer or cardiovascular disease or, you know, diabetes. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, um, mm-hmm. you know, when you isolate all these people at home with diseases, they still need care. And so um, what I have been so thrilled with is, I mean, there are a number of technology companies out there that very quickly tried to come up with solutions. I mean, for us, Uh, As you mentioned early on, uh, for the last several years, we have been focused on creating a mobile health platform so that our patients, where possible, could engage with their trial experience remotely. Um, In addition to that, we have our connected device division through Care Innovations where we can remotely monitor patients with FDA-cleared and CE-cleared devices within their own home, so kind of a hospital at home. So, you know, we have been working on this paradigm for a number of years, and with our sponsor companies, we were quickly able to deploy a lot of that so that we could ensure that patients that were most critical, that needed access to either physician oversight or access to their medications, could continue that continuity without interruption. 
Um, we have been very thoughtful in triaging, you know, what procedures could be delayed without impacting kind of data integrity for a trial versus what is paramount to patient safety and, and, and treatment of their disease. And so um, that has been very thoughtful um, and in many cases critically important to be able to deploy those types of platforms to ensure all of the non-COVID patients have access to treatment. The other thing and the reason that remote patient monitoring and mobile is so important is for many of these patients we're talking about, they also have comorbidities that put them at significant higher risk yep. of not only catching COVID, but having a severe reaction to the COVID virus. And so how do we ensure that we can continue to maintain those patients on trials without pulling them out of their home to have procedures that would put them at even greater risk than the disease they have to start with? And so, um, again, this is where technology becomes critical, is it's not just about treating their disease or keeping them on trial, but it's how do we keep them safe and out of harm's way while we do that. So while data integrity for trials is critical, um, you know, patient safety is even more critical. So we're trying to manage all of those pieces and balance out the needs, and we're working with sponsor companies. Um, we have uh, EHR integration technology as well that allows us where we can to remotely pull data from the EHRs. Um, and we're working with a number of clients and different technologies right now to help uh, the clinical trial sites who also are in shelter-in-place rules for many of the staff to be able to still collect data for them, either push data from patients to them or collect it for trials. Um, so again, technology is helping us, um, but people are having to make lots of accommodation right now to make sure that non-COVID patients are still getting access. Well, I'm, I'm glad that um, PRA Health Sciences, you know, has spent um, a considerable investment to optimize a remote patient monitoring infrastructure and, you know, to support virtual or decentralized clinical trials. Um, can you tell us more about the, um, this new development, the COVID-19 monitoring app? Oh, absolutely. So um, one of the things that happened very quickly, and you mentioned speed. Um, so because PRA already has a mobile remote patient monitoring platform, uh, within about 72 hours, we modified that platform specifically to capture and help COVID-positive patients monitor their own health, again, from the privacy of their own home. So what we, what we knew very quickly was, and we saw this in places like New York and, and, and Italy and Spain, was that healthcare systems were becoming overwhelmed incredibly fast, right? So um, patients that were mildly or moderately ill with COVID symptoms, um, or were simply just worried well, they were going to their physicians, going to emergency departments with symptoms that didn't have any um, critical need to be treated. And so what we knew is that about 70 or 80% of COVID patients would have symptoms that did not warrant inpatient care, and they could be managed from home. The challenge is that, one, if all of those patients go to the healthcare systems, then the nurses and doctors are overwhelmed, and they don't have the ability to treat the patients that are at greatest need. The other concern was if potentially COVID-positive patients were going into these healthcare centers, they were possible vectors of transmission of COVID to healthcare workers and other patients. And so oh, we wanted to be able to create, yeah, which is even worse, right? We don't want to make the people that are supposed to help us get sick. And so our, our mission was how do we use our remote patient monitoring platform to monitor patients' COVID symptoms from within their isolated homes so they're not putting other people at risk, but where we can still manage their safety? And so our remote monitoring COVID-19 platform uh, takes the CDC chatbot, so the CDC guidelines. Um, Microsoft, as you may know, worked with CDC to create a health bot specific to 
manage patients through initial COVID symptoms. We are a Microsoft partner, so we partnered with them to take the CDC chatbot, put it on the front end of our mobile app, and then patients can now download that app and they can monitor their own COVID symptoms from home. We follow kind of the CDC guidelines for what those symptoms are. So there's a number of interactive questions that um, patients do on their own phone once they download the app. Um, we have patients enter uh, vital signs, so things like temperature into the app as well. Um, and then we have a centralized nursing function on the back end that monitors all of that data in real time so that if a patient were to have symptoms that indicated they needed treatment, we can direct them and connect them to a healthcare provider. And so that platform really was one set up to protect the healthcare system, two to make sure that we could manage and, and, and help patients protect their own health within their home, um, and three for kind of employers and employees. Uh, in retail spaces so that we can create uh, return to work policies and platforms so that when, when we do send people back to work, we make sure that they don't have COVID as well. And that platform has been phenomenally successful. We are rolled out in multiple countries right now uh, and, and have tens of thousands of patients kind of using that app to monitor their symptoms. Um, and as we learn more about the disease, uh, we have the ability to modify that app so we're keeping up with kind of the newest knowledge around symptoms and symptom management for these patients. Nice, and congratulations on that. That was a super fast turnaround. Um, so I know we've talked about a number of things, but let me ask you to summarize. So when you think about the lessons learned so far in expediting um, either a therapeutic or a vaccine-focused program for COVID-19, can you summarize for us what, were the, what have been the key lessons learned? Well, I mean, I think the key lessons learned are uh, that we should not be afraid of technology, that technology can help enable us to speed up things that we have done. I think that we are learning very uh, quickly uh, that we have procedures and processes in place that can meet uh, the um, good clinical practice guidance and the ICH guidance that's necessary for running clinical trials, but we can do that in a fashion that allows us to speed up the process to get trials started. Um, and, and so I think from a lessons learned perspective, we have learned that drug development overall, um, we should not be fooled into thinking that the status quo is acceptable anymore, right? So that status quo of taking eight or 10 or 12 years to get a drug to market or six or nine or 12 months to get study sites up and running or get patients access to drugs, that status quo uh, was there just because of complacency, right? And so if anything, we have learned that we can do better, we have done better, and we will continue to do better if we take all of these things we have learned and apply them to kind of the new normal for how business should be conducted. And I think the thing to remember is the impact on patient lives, the number of patient lives that have potentially been saved by intervening with some of these therapeutics earlier because we were able to compress that timeline, had we not had kind of this uh, global consciousness and will to change, we would have lost those patient lives, right? And this is not to say that these drugs are efficacious or not, but we do know that some of these novel drugs are impacting the mechanism of this disease in some way so that we are seeing patients do better. And so when people, you know, and I have this conversation with my staff all the time, it is a very challenging time for everybody right now. Work is hard. Balancing work with being at home and children and homeschooling and, and all of these complexities. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
But in our industry, we just don't have the luxury to do status quo, right, especially right now, because what we know is that costs lives. And so, again, back to my initial thing about how I got into this business and the balance between the amazing privilege it is to be part of this process, but the ultimate responsibility, that responsibility also entails that we take these lessons learned and we understand the impact on patient lives and we apply that methodology to say that's not good enough anymore and we're not willing to sacrifice patient health or patient lives for process uh, as long as we can do it in a way that ensures that the ultimate goal of safety and efficacy are still there. Thank you for that. Um, I'd love to end on this this question uh, for you, Kent. So as a person in a leadership role, what is your advice to others um, on on continuing to move forward? Um, you know, this is incredible what we're, what we're going through. And as you mentioned, people are working from home and they're taking care of children or homeschooling children at the same time. Um, and we have, you know, tons of responsibility to many, many stakeholders. Um, how are you doing it? How are you moving forward um, and keeping it together for your, your team and your patients, et cetera? I mean, I think that we, what we try to do, what I try to do certainly individually, is I keep that mission focused all the time, right, that, that the patients, right, all of these people that are in ICUs, right, these folks that are, I mean, unbelievably uh, ill, who uh, in many cases are dying alone because of the confinement we have around the infectious rate of this disease, that could be any one of us and it could be any of our loved ones. And so that mission focus, right? So to keep people focused on why we're doing that is, is, a, good, um, is, a, is a good and important mission message for all of our employees. Having said that, it is also incredibly exhausting. And so what I can't afford to do is have all of these phenomenal people who are bright and intelligent and key to making these solutions happen so that these patients get better uh, burn out as part of the process, right? And so while we think about COVID all the time, I think as employers, right, and as managers and as part of this process, whether you're in a hospital or on the front line or in R&D, um, we have got to remember that mental health is equally important, right? And so we're working with our employees to make sure that where, where possible, where appropriate, uh, that they are taking time off. Even though it seems like everybody is isolated at home, Simply being isolated at home doesn't mean you get time off. If anything, what we're seeing with our employees is the isolation at home is causing an increased workload, right, because you can't get away from work. And so people are putting in 10, 12, 14-hour days, where in the original world they might have put in an eight-hour day. And so we are being incredibly cognizant of the impact the virus is having not only on people that are sick, but on kind of the work environment and, and the mental health of our people that are so critical to solutioning this problem. And so, um, you know, there is this balance. While we all focus on COVID and, and, and getting trials done, we can't forget that the people that are doing all that work are susceptible to things that are not COVID-related. And, and so how do we balance all of that out and keep our employee well-being and health uh, equally important to, to what our mission at hand is? And so um, I try to keep that balance. Um, you know, I don't think any of us are very good at balancing right now, but we're trying to keep it front of mind. Uh, and so, um, you know, that's what we're trying to focus on right now. As leaders, 
I think it's very challenging, right? It's a lot of anxiety in the world right now. And how do you help manage anxiety, but keep people driving forward? Um, and so we're just trying yeah. to figure out a way to balance that in this new normal. Yeah. I mean, I one thing I, can't, I, love what you said I about, cannot, yeah. I mean, I just can't. I was going to say, stay my, focused on the mission. I love that. <laughs> I mean, the mission's yeah, so ahead, critical, Jen. but, and, and this is just me kind of gushing for a minute, but, um, I am humbled every day I come to work at the the amount of work that people are doing. And I know this is, you know, I'm specifically focused on PRA, but it is humbling to see how many people are so committed to this. And it is industry-wide, and it is within healthcare systems and frontline workers and emergency workers and, and clinical supply chain management people and lab workers and and it is humbling. Uh, you know, in my career, I've spent a lot of time, and, and uh, it's, it's pretty amazing. So, Yeah, you know, um, we're all in this together, and we're not alone. And it's really hard work. But as you said, um, stay focused on the mission. And, you know, Ken, I was going to say for our listeners, um, uh, for more information on, on PRA Health Sciences, go to PRAHS. PRAHS.com. Um, and Kent had mentioned uh, Craco earlier, and um, we also have worked with Kent on our mobile and clinical trials conference in DFARM. Um, and for information on those programs and other podcasts, visit uh, theconferenceforum.org. And, um, and thank you, Kent, so much for joining me today. Thank you, Valerie. I think, uh, and, and also, you know, clearly if anybody wants to contact me or reach me, I think the websites can be challenging sometime. I'm on LinkedIn. You know, please feel free to, to direct message me or, or reach out to me on LinkedIn. And, um, you know, I want to thank you, Valerie, I mean, your company and your mission and your focus on, on things like this and clinical research as a care option and really advancing kind of drug development overall has been a critically important piece of this process. Uh, to make sure that we do better, right? We're always focusing on doing better. And, and I am um, in, incredibly thankful that you and, and, and your company have really focused on helping pharma and us uh, drive that message forward. Oh, Ken, thank you so much. I, I, I really appreciate that. So um, sending safe and best wishes to you and everyone. And thanks so much, everyone. Thank you so much, Ken. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.